Welcome to the Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective. I'm Tony Aguilar. On today's podcast, we continue our conversation about the state of nuclear disarmament and potential nuclear conflict around the world with our special guest, Kelsey Davenport, next. Kelsey Davenport is the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association, where she focuses on the nuclear and missile programs in Iran and North Korea, as well as international efforts to prevent proliferation and nuclear terrorism. She is the creator and lead author of the P4 Plus One and Iran Nuclear Deal Alert Newsletter, which assesses developments related to the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran. Ms. Davenport's commentary has been included in publications such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, and Reuters, and has provided expert analyses for various news outlets such as NPR, CNN, ABC, Fox News, and MSNBC. She is a member of the advisory board for the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, as well as the Advisory Committee for the National Committee on North Korea. She is the author of the book, The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Kelsey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I, I want to start with this. Uh, normally when we talk about nuclear disarmament as well as nuclear conflicts, we usually talk about it in the context of Russia and the United States. Now, they do have the overwhelming majority of nuclear weapons, but where do you see the greatest potential for nuclear conflict at this stage? Well, nuclear risk is not static. So as geopolitical events change, I think the likelihood of nuclear conflict you know, rises and falls in different areas of the world. You know, certainly a lot of focus has been paid in the last year to nuclear rhetoric coming out of Russia and Russian President Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, you know, have more openly threatened to use nuclear weapons in the war uh, with Ukraine. Uh, despite that rhetoric, I still think right now the most likely arena for nuclear conflict is, is the Korean Peninsula. And there are several factors for me that drive that assessment. You know, first... North Korea is in the process of expanding its nuclear arsenal and the missile systems it can use to deliver nuclear weapons. And it's really focused on two goals. You know, first, you know, deterring the United States from any type of attack on North Korea, and then repelling any invasion in the event that deterrence fails. So it's focused now on shorter range missile systems that you know, can target South Korea, and can target you know, US military assets in the region. And this is at a time when the United States and South Korea and the United States and Japan you know, are strengthening their alliances and engaged in larger scale military exercises and nuclear signaling of their own. So the prospects for miscalculation for North Korea you know, misreading an exercise as an attack you know, the prospect of a smaller incident, you know, escalating to conflict and then North Korea thinking it's in a position where it may need to use its nuclear weapons to preserve its regime. I think those scenarios right now are much more likely. And that's why if we're going to see a nuclear conflict, you know, for right now, the Korean Peninsula, I, I think, is the most likely arena. And Kim Jong-un has been testing nuclear weapons for what he says in response to military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. And on top of that, there is supposedly a plan that was announced by the United States for him to visit Russia and to talk about providing Russia with arms to, to fight Ukraine. Does that also create a potential for conflict between the United States and, and North Korea? 
Well, again, I certainly can think it contributes to an environment where tensions are raised, where we see more bellicose rhetoric coming from both Pyongyang and Washington. And again, all of that contributes to you know, a geopolitical space where leaders are more likely to miscalculate. I mean, certainly, you know, North Korea right now views Russia's invasion of Ukraine you know, as an opportunity to strengthen ties with Moscow. And it could seek to trade conventional munitions that Russia desperately needs for the war in Ukraine, you know, in exchange for other assistance. You know, North Korea is trying to develop a satellite program, for instance, uh, and has really been struggling. The last you know, several launches have failed to put a satellite in orbit. And from debris recovered, it appears that North Korea's satellite technology is not actually advanced enough to provide any real benefit to Pyongyang, even if the satellite you know, were to make it to, to orbit. Um, North Korea also, of course, facing a very dire economic situation. So it might be looking for food aid in response. So any of these interactions that you know, strengthen ties between Moscow and, and Pyongyang the U.S. is going to need, respond to. And again, that just contributes to this environment where tensions are raised and the, the probability of, of miscalculation, you know, continues to increase. One of the areas that you do tend to monitor very closely, obviously, is Iran. And there was some semblance of, of hope uh, in that there might be an agreement between the United States and Iran, particularly with this uh, recent hostage exchange which now allows South Korea to pay money to Iran for oil that they purchased, which the Trump administration disallowed them to do. Uh, but there's also been other caveats to that, in that Iran is not letting uh, the IAEA come in to do additional monitoring. How do you assess that situation right now? Well, I think really to understand the current tensions between the United States and Iran, particularly in regards to Tehran's nuclear program, we have to kind of look back over the past year. You know, last August, Washington and Tehran were very close to reaching an agreement that would have restored a previous nuclear deal negotiated in 2015 that imposed very strict limits on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. Now, the Trump administration, of course, withdrew from that deal in 2018, despite Iran's compliance and, and reimposed sanctions. Now, since talks to restore that nuclear deal broke down a year ago, there was a hiatus when the United States and Iran really were not engaged at all on, on any of these issues. That was in part because there were a number of domestic protests in Iran and Tehran's you know, brutal repression of, of these protesters. I think it sparked a lot of backlash, particularly in the United States, and there was very little appetite for engagement. But while the United States and Iran were not talking, you know, Tehran's nuclear program was continuing to advance. And Iran is actually now closer to nuclear weapons than it has been at any point, you know, in its past history. You know, it could produce, you know, enough nuclear material for three or four weapons in under a month. Now it would still have to weaponize that material and that is a process that could take anywhere from six months to two years. But certainly the nuclear risk has increased. Now, as a result of that, and because of the Biden administration's desire to bring home you know, US hostages that have been held in Iran, there has been some limited re-engagement between the United States and Iran. There were proxy talks in Oman this spring. And I think finally we see the acknowledgement in both Washington and Tehran, that there is a need to de-escalate tensions now before the current situation you know, erupts in, into conflict, that this crisis is on sort of the edge of, of, of boiling over, both because of nuclear advances, but also just the proximity of, of US and Iranian-backed forces in the region. And you know, that's another area of tension that, that could cause a, a conflict to erupt. So as a result of these you know, proximity talks, it appears that both sides agreed on some de-escalatory steps. Um, five you know, Americans being held in Iran have been released on, uh, on, on house arrest. Uh, so they are still in Iran, but, um, but they're no longer in prison. And in exchange, you know, Oman is going to funnel uh, some money, Iranian money that had been held in South Korea as a result of U.S. sanctions, you know, through humanitarian channels back into the country. You know, it also appears that Iran may be willing to take some steps you know, on the nuclear side to de-escalate. 
Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency just reported that Tehran is not accumulating highly enriched uranium as quickly as it has been in the past. Uh, and while that is a limited non-proliferation value, it's politically significant. Iran views this material as a key source of leverage. So I think any movement there, you know, is could be an indication that that Iran is willing to take you know further steps to de-escalate its nuclear program and stabilize this current crisis. So hopefully, you know, building on this momentum from the the prisoner release, you know, the positive steps on the highly enriched uranium front, we might see the United States and Iran, or possibly the broader, you know, group of countries known as the P4 plus one and the United States and Iran, you know, return to talks maybe on the sidelines of the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly coming up in September. And there, I think the United States really needs to push for Iran to take additional steps to enhance International Atomic Energy Agency monitoring of its nuclear program. We need a clearer picture of what Tehran is doing inside these facilities to ensure that it's not diverting materials for a covert program and to provide more assurance that its nuclear program is entirely peaceful. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that we're going to see a revival of that 2015 nuclear deal that we were so close to restoring last year. I think too much time has passed. It's too close to the U.S. elections that Iran may not be willing to, um, to take a chance on reviving that deal. But you know, further de-escalatory steps that lower tensions and reduce nuclear risk it would create time and space for negotiations down the road. And I think that's what we ultimately need to look for is, you know, after the U.S. presidential elections, you know, engaging with Iran to reach a new, you know, comprehensive nuclear deal. And until then, I think, you know, stabilizing the current crisis is likely what we're going to see the Biden administration pursue going forward. Where does Israel fit in all of this? Because they're not for the joint comprehensive plan of action. They never were for it. Uh, they believe that Iran should not have a nuclear program at all. And they are prepared to engage militarily to make sure that does not happen. Now, Iran has, as you said, slowed down their enrichment process to where it would be below 60%. But even that would not really be enough for Israel. Is there still, even though we talk in the context of the United States, is there still uh, potential for that uh, nuclear conflict if Iran still maintains its program, albeit slower, but Israel says that's not enough and they decide to attack? Where does that put us then? Well, I, think, I still think that there is a real risk that the nuclear crisis of Iran you know, could erupt in, in, in conflict. As I said, the steps that Iran have taken to date are very limited, and they do not do a lot to actually reduce nuclear risk or increase that amount of time that we would have to respond if Iran were to make the decision to pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, so certainly, we need to see the Biden administration you know, pursue additional steps to, to de-escalate. But I think it's also important to point out when we're talking about military options and whether or not Israel will exercise a military option to roll back Iran's nuclear program, that Israel has never succeeded in more than you know, opening up you know, short-term windows for rolling back Iran's nuclear program through its use of kinetic action. Iran responds to sabotage, assassinations of its scientists, and attacks on its nuclear facilities by further ratcheting up its program and hardening the nuclear facilities that it already has, making them more difficult to attack in the future. So while Israel often talks about a military option, and occasionally we see you know, the Israeli military engage in drills that are designed to simulate you know, an attack on Iran, this is not a viable long-term strategy for addressing Iran's nuclear program. Again, a military attack, you know, might in the short term set back Iran's program, but in the longer term, it's just going to drive Tehran to further advance its nuclear program and could actually lead Iran to make the decision that nuclear weapons are necessary to defend the territorial integrity of the state. So my concern is that the military option actually has the adverse effect, that it drives Iran closer to nuclear weapons you know, in the long term. So I really don't think that there's a military strategy here. 
And this is one thing that I think is another thing that I think is troubling about the Israeli strategy in general. Um, you know, when the prior nuclear deal was negotiated in 2015, you know, then Prime Minister Netanyahu came out very strongly against the deal, and he lobbied members of Congress, you know, not to support that that agreement. And he and his administration, I think, were instrumental in pushing former President Trump to withdraw from the deal. But Israel is not offering a viable strategy for then how to address Iran's nuclear program in the absence of diplomacy. I mean, there is, you know, there of course has been, you know, proposals put forward, you know, by Israeli officials, you know, by, you know, the Trump administration when it was in power for, you know, what they would consider a good nuclear deal to look like. Uh, But these were conditions that Iran would never agree to. Right. I mean, a negotiation inevitably involves compromise. And while the United States and Israel may not like the idea of an Iranian program, right, Iran is not going to dismantle its entire civil nuclear program, uh, you know, for what the United States is willing to put on the table. So I think when considering Israeli criticism, we have to be realistic about the fact that, you know, a nuclear deal with Iran may not be perfect but it really is the best option in the long term to roll back Iran's nuclear program, to ensure that it's intrusively monitored and to provide greater assurance that that program is peaceful. Let me ask you this question. Um, When it comes to nations that look to deploy or to create their own nuclear weapons, we saw Ukraine, which had nuclear weapons, which, Dr. Baker reminded me, did not belong to them, but really belonged to the Soviet Union after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, it was on Ukrainian territory. And the Budapest Memorandum was to provide uh, security guarantees if they gave these weapons back over. And here we are now, Russia is invading. Do smaller nations say, look, nations with nuclear weapons do not get invaded? So Iraq was invaded by the United States. Uh, Ukraine is invaded by Russia. And North Korea, whether we want to look at it from whatever perspective, sees itself as under threat, perhaps. Uh, and so do so does Iran. So how should we look at that in terms of smaller states and how do we make it imperative to let them know that we will not invade them, even though they are a smaller country, either from the Russian's perspective or the United States? Sure. So I think there are you know, two primary factors to keep in mind here. You know, first, when we talk about the decision of a state to pursue nuclear weapons, particularly if that state is a member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and is legally obligated not to pursue nuclear weapons, we have to remember that countries that have gone down this route, you know, like Iran, like North Korea, have paid a tremendous price for pursuing those systems. You know, North Korea and Iran are you know, the most heavily sanctioned countries in the world. The economies of these countries have taken a huge hit because of sanctions that have been imposed as a result of their nuclear ambitions. These countries are diplomatically isolated, you know, less so since Russia invaded Ukraine and has, you know, outreach to to North Korea and and Iran. Um, But the price they've played is very high. A lot of states are not going to want to pay that cost, uh, particularly if it means being cut off from the U.S. financial system, which is a typical sanction that the United States has employed, you know, to would-be proliferators of of, of nuclear weapons. Uh, And they're just, the the perceived security value of nuclear weapons is not going to outweigh that sanctions risk for most states. You know, another factor that I think is important to keep in mind is that when we look at proliferation, the decision that states, when states make a decision to proliferate, it isn't just driven by the perceived strength of their adversaries. It's also driven by concerns about the strength of their alliances. So there's a lot of discussion right now in South Korea about whether or not South Korea should have a domestic nuclear deterrent. And yes, some of that is, of course, driven by the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons. Uh, But it's also driven out of concern that the U.S.-South Korean alliance 
is not strong enough to support South Korea in the event of an attack you know, by North Korea. That you know, the United States will not you know, trade you know, North Korea targeting San Francisco for you know, defending Seoul, for instance. And I think that it's that question about alliance stability that often you know, plays into state decision-making about nuclear weapons. So we also have to ensure that you know, we have strong alliances, that the United States you know, reassures its partners and alliances that you know, it will have their back in the event of these types of, of, of conflicts, uh, because that can be a powerful deterrent against proliferation as well. Looking into that and taking maybe a step further, you know, 2024, we obviously have an election coming up. Depending upon who gets into the White House determines whether or not there's an internationalist strategy in terms of national defense or isolationist. So are nations also weary about the fact, because one of the things that came about when Biden came into office and Biden was touting this thing, we're back. But then the retort was, yes, but for how long? And so are nations now looking to hedge their bets because, as you just said, they may not be able to depend upon the United States for security guarantees, depending upon who gets the White House in 2024? I think that's a critical point. I mean, we cannot understate the damage that President Trump did to the broader non-proliferation and disarmament regime, you know, while he was president. I mean, he not only, you know, tore up a highly effective nuclear agreement with Iran, he withdrew the United States from an important arms control treaty with Russia that prohibited an entire class of missiles from being nuclear armed. Uh, he engaged in a very sort of bellicose escalation of rhetoric with North Korea in 2017 that I think brought us closer to conflict with Pyongyang than we've been since the end of the Korean War. Uh, and again, his questioning of alliances, uh, I think really put a question mark in the minds of you know, South Korean officials, Japanese officials about the strength of US security commitments. So certainly I think, in 2024, you know, the election of an isolationist president that you know looks inward as opposed to you know trying to strengthen the non-proliferation regime, trying to strengthen the global nuclear order, and you know takes the U.S. alliance commitment seriously. Uh, any leader along those lines, I think, is going to run the risk that we continue to erode the non-proliferation and disarmament architecture, that we see more states becoming interested in nuclear weapons, even if they don't end up crossing the weapons threshold, you know, trying to acquire the necessary capabilities so that they could develop nuclear weapons in the future. And all of that is destabilizing from a nuclear risk perspective. It increases the likelihood that nuclear weapons are used at some point you know, in, in, in conflict. And it you know, undermines confidence that the United States is willing to be a leader both in preventing proliferation, but also reducing nuclear risk. So certainly from a nuclear perspective, I think that the, the 2024 election you know, is quite important. Uh, and if we see a president elected, if we see President Biden reelected, for instance, I think he may also have more space to you know, pursue a more ambitious agenda to reduce nuclear risk. A lot of the past, his first term will have been spent on damage control, you know, trying to restore some confidence in US leadership in non-proliferation and disarmament, you know, trying to um, ensure that the US responds responsibly to, you know, to Russian rhetoric about nuclear weapons, you know, trying to you know, avert a nuclear crisis with Iran, trying to prevent escalation with North Korea. So in a second term, he might be able to be more ambitious in terms of actually, you know, perhaps negotiating a deal with Iran, restarting talks with, with North Korea, uh, and maybe even looking at something in the broader multilateral regime that you know, reduces the risk of, of, of nuclear weapons use, say, between the United States and Russia. 
But go a step further with that. Uh, you're talking about maybe other states, maybe looking at uh, nuclear weapons as well. One, who would those other potential players be? But two, one of the things that we have to recognize historically is that what led to the um, non-proliferation uh, treaty was public pressure around the world, uh, particularly in the 70s and the 80s. And with the recent release of the movie Oppenheimer, there's been some increase of interest in non-proliferation and disarmament campaigns. So one, um, what other nation do we need to be looking at that's looking at nuclear weapons? But two, how do you create that groundswell again in the United States to look at pressuring polit uh, politicians uh, to really be involved in the issue of uh, non-proliferation? So on the first question, I don't think we're going to see a number of states make the decision to build nuclear weapons in the next several years. But what I do think we'll see are these countries trying to acquire the capabilities that would give them the option to build nuclear weapons. This is called nuclear hedging. And you know, the most likely contenders there, I think, are South Korea. Uh, but I would also put on that list countries like Saudi Arabia, which is looking for the technology to be able to enrich uranium, which you know, could be used, of course, for civil or military purposes. Uh, Saudi Arabia has also openly threatened to pursue nuclear weapons, particularly to match any capability Iran has. I also think you know, we should be concerned about Turkey. Again, you know, Turkey is a country that is investing in a nuclear infrastructure, but has also made comments about nuclear weapons in the past that are deeply troubling. So I would have these three countries on my radar. And regarding the other question about you know, creating public pressure for further steps on disarmament, I think that's a great point. I think that over the past several decades, nuclear weapons have kind of largely fell off the radar of kind of salient threats to the general US public, right? When you compare the nuclear threats to, to climate change, to terrorism, to epidemics, these are the lived experiences of younger generation. These threats are tangible to them. Nuclear weapons feel a bit archaic. And also sometimes because the nuclear weapons challenge you know, is perceived as, as, as so difficult uh, and because any use of nuclear weapons would be so catastrophic, research shows that a lot of the general public doesn't even like thinking about nuclear weapons. Uh, but I think you know, you're right in that Oppenheimer, you know, the film has created some renewed interest in, in, in nuclear disarmament. And the question is, how do we capitalize on that? And I think you know, we need to consider several strategies. You know, first, you know, people generally engage more when they feel like a threat is connected to their local communities. So when they see you know, the consequences of that threat you know, playing out in, in their daily lives. So I think we need to do a better job understanding and uh, articulating how nuclear weapons and, and nuclear risk is not just a global issue, but it's also a local issue. And talking about how communities have been affected by nuclear weapons production. You know, talking about the risks that you know, are posed by living in a community where nuclear weapons are based. All of that, I think, helps drive local connections. You know, also, I think we need to, in the nuclear disarmament community, you know, pursue intersectionality with more authenticity. And by that, I mean, I think we have to look at the connections between nuclear weapons and social justice issues. Look at the connections between you know, nuclear weapons and um, you know, federal spending uh, and, and you know, where funding is being shifted to nuclear weapons where it could be spent elsewhere. The connections between nuclear weapons and public health. And if we pursue these relationships, you know, it again shows people how the failure to make progress on nuclear disarmament is affecting their lives and is connected with issues that they may already care about or be involved in. And the relationship between nuclear weapons and the environment, I mean, that's another intersection that we have to explore. And finally, I would say we have to pair you know, that you know, more kind of authentic and holistic narrative about nuclear weapons with tangible steps that individuals can pursue to support disarmament. 
And if you talk about you know, global nuclear disarmament, I mean, this is going to be a highly complex technical decades long process. It feels enormous. It feels sometimes to individuals like a goal that cannot actually be achieved. But if we can lay out the steps to get there and show the public you know, where they can weigh in on specific issues and then demonstrate some concrete results, I think kind of laying out that path of progress, showing individuals where they can have an impact now towards that goal of disarmament uh, can better empower the general public to be more engaged on these issues. Let, let me ask you this then. So your organization, which is a very prominent organization, uh, is very influential when it comes to uh, policy and which way policy goes. Um, where are you taking the notion of intersectionality on the issue of nuclear disarmament? I mean, how is that being staged now from an organization such as yours? So I'll, I'll be honest, when I talk about the nuclear field needing to do better on intersectionality, I mean, I, I would include you know, my organization you know, within that. I mean, I think we have taken some important steps in terms of trying to create space for individuals from impacted communities to, you know, to write and share their experiences and centering, you know, their voices also within the disarmament narrative. I think that, you know, we have supported you know, the, you know, the negotiation and implementation of uh, a second, you know, treaty um, known as the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of, of Nuclear Weapons, or sometimes more closely as the Ban Treaty. Uh, and that treaty actually discusses, you know, mitigation for environmental impacts. Uh, it discusses, you know, response and mitigation, and that I think is also, you know, quite quite important. Uh, I think too, you know, we have, you know, again tried to create a platform to, you know, for authors to explore, you know, connections between, you know, race and nuclear weapons, um, and you know, look at, you know, what policies you know, we should support, you know, at the federal level that could start to address some of those inequities. Some of that includes, you know, compensation for nuclear testing and, you know, recognizing the communities that have been affected, you know, by the, the U.S. nuclear weapons complex. Uh, but again, I think there is much more that needs to be done in this space to better explore those connections. So, final follow-up question on that. Is there a tendency perhaps for other organizations to be a little leery of creating intersectionality with say the, the nuclear arms um, disarmament campaign, because they remember, for example, Dr. Martin Luther King, who did involve himself in the Vietnam War, but was heavily criticized by the civil rights movement, by movements uh, that were not civil rights movements. And people have that historical memory. So do you think it will be difficult to create that inter intersectionality because of that history? I think that that historical memory certainly could play a role in, in how members of the nuclear community you know, perceive you know, options for, for intersectionality. I, mean, I think you know, relatedly, one of the challenges that the nuclear community faces and this relates to intersectionality, but not, it's not solely about intersectionality, is that the nuclear policy community can be you know, very exclusive in terms of the language that it uses. Um, and it can be very challenging to break into the nuclear community as a young person. So I think you know, as we also become more inclusive, as we create more opportunities, for younger experts to move you know, into this field, that that you know can create new spaces to you know explore that intersectionality because some of these generations you know, they may know of, of that past history, but because it's not their lived experience, pursue it differently, and it may influence their thinking differently. So I think that, so I would view, you know, expanding the nuclear field, bringing in new voices in the nuclear field as also, you know, hopefully creating, you know, new spaces for intersectionality and new creative thinking about how we engage with different communities. 
one of the things that you deal with is notion of nuclear terrorism because we tend to talk about uh, nuclear conflicts as between sovereign states but there are potential non-state actors who could create obviously a lot of havoc through nuclear terrorism could you say a little bit more about that and where would that occur and who do you not fear but who do you worry about most as a non-state actor who could engage in nuclear terrorism? Sure. So there was a significant push by President Obama during his administration to reduce the risk of nuclear terrorism. And he's held a series of you know, four you know, high-level leader meetings that were designed to try to minimize nuclear terrorism by ensuring encouraging states to be more proactive about securing their nuclear materials, but also disposing of nuclear materials that could be used in a weapon um, responsibly. And as a result of this effort, I think the risk of nuclear terrorism has declined somewhat, and there's been greater awareness about just how prevalent the, the risk of nuclear terrorism actually was, and, and, and still is to today. Uh, so, you know, when I look at the risk of, of nuclear terrorism, uh, I think that there is a lot of there's a lot of reason to focus you know, on the Middle East. A uh, number of countries in the region are investing in civil nuclear programs. I mean, we already have reactors in the United Arab Emirates. There's a power reactor in Iran. Saudi Arabia is looking at nuclear power. Turkey is looking at nuclear power. And in connection with these developments, you know, the Emiratis, for instance, you know, raised concern about the Houthis having fired a ballistic missile, you know, in the direction of one of their power reactors, you know, in, in the past. So I think when we think about nuclear terrorism, you know, we cannot be so focused on the idea that nuclear terrorism looks like, you know, stealing some highly enriched uranium and, you know, creating a crude nuclear device. I mean, that was a risk in the past, you know, there you know, was some interest in work you know, from Al-Qaeda uh, and other non-state actors you know, along those lines. But I think today, the risk of nuclear terrorism is more about you know, an attack or act of sabotage against you know, an existing nuclear facility you know, like a nuclear power plant and the radiation release that would come from that. And again, just given the prevalence of attacks against nuclear facilities in the Middle East in the past, you know, I would be kind of most focused on that region. And of course, you know, we also, we can't forget about Ukraine when we talk about an instance of nuclear terrorism. You know, Russia is occupying you know, the largest nuclear power plants, you know, in, in Europe um, in violation of international law. You know, they attacked Zaporizhia. Russian personnel have been stationed there since the very beginning of, of the war in in Ukraine. And at times, you know, Ukrainian officials have accused Russia of planning some type of, you know, false flag um, nuclear incident and, and blaming it on, on Ukraine. So I think there still is a real risk that we could see an act of terrorism, you know, a state-sponsored act of terrorism uh, you know, involving a Ukrainian nuclear facility, again, which would have devastating consequences. So I would be looking at, you know, Ukraine in the immediate term, but in the longer term, thinking about how we can ensure that nuclear power facilities being built and constructed and planned, you know, in the Middle East to ensure that that those are secure against act, attacks and, and acts of sabotage. We right now we know where close to thirteen thousand nuclear weapons are. We can identify their locations, but there's always the possibility of redeployment of nuclear weapons. One of the things that's been fascinating me as I look at, for example, the continent of Africa and the competition for influence between Russia, United States, and China, is there a possibility that, let's say, a Russia or any of the superpowers may look to redeploy some of their arsenal in some of these nations? Russia, for example, is putting some of its arsenal in Belarus. Uh, there's a possibility, we'll see what happens with Sweden and Finland, 
would there be the redeployment there as well? So is that a possibility? And if it is, how would that upset the uh, global balance of power in terms of nuclear weapons? I think it's a possibility that you know, countries would consider deployment of nuclear weapons in, in Africa. But to be honest, I, I think it's a pretty remote possibility. President Vladimir Putin has shown a blatant disregard for nuclear norms and nuclear treaties. But there is a treaty that, that you know, covering the continent of Africa that you know, declares it a nuclear weapons free zone. And both the United States and Russia have you know, pledged to respect that. Again, how much do Russian commitments mean in the nuclear space right now? You know, not a lot. But I think you know, between the legal obligations that African countries themselves have insisted upon and negotiated and implemented, you know, and the concern about what becoming a state that houses nuclear weapons, you know, would mean and the target that that would put on that country's back. Yeah, I personally think it's unlikely that we're going to want to see leaders, you know, engage in that risk. And I also think that I'm not sure that the United States and Russia even would be interested in expanding kind of the theater of their nuclear conflict, you know, to a, a, another to another continent. Right now, you know, with Russia having decided to withdraw from the new strategic arms reduction treaty, whether you know there are limits on you know the U.S. and Russian arsenals is is you know, up, up up in the air given the the lack of implementation of that treaty. But if either state were to decide to kind of significantly expand their nuclear programs, try to house nuclear weapons, you know, in a new continent, you know, or, or like like Africa, and again, turn that into kind of a, a nuclear theater. I mean, that would be a significant expense that they would incur as well. Uh, and again, it, you know, it, it, it could be even, you know, further destabilizing. And I think the extent to which Washington and Moscow want to engage in that right now, I, I, I think is limited. I mean, I think the Belarus, you know, question and, and the Russian decision to deploy weapons in Belarus is, is, is quite different because you have, you know, Russia confronting, you know, the NATO alliance, you know, in Europe and, you know, Belarus being, you know, one of Putin's sort of few kind of allies on that, that, that continent. And it, Belarus also not covered by an existing, you know, nuclear weapon free zone treaty. So I think that if we're talking about, you know, the extended deployment of nuclear weapons, you know, we might see more movement in Europe and we could see more movement around the Korean peninsula. Uh, but I think it's unlikely at this point to expand into other regions of the world. Going full circle back to some of the comments you had made about the increase in, in bellicose uh, speech around nuclear weapons. Um, Medvedev had recently said, or not Medvedev, but Eugeny Popov, uh, talking in response to United States, let's say, attack on Russian military, they would see a bomb come over the waters to into the United States. We haven't really seen this level of bellicose talk since the Cuban Missile Crisis with Kennedy and Khrushchev. Number one, given your experience, and knowledge of this whole sector, how seriously should we be taking all of this bellicose discussion? Or how much of it is really for domestic consumption? Which which is it, or is it a combination of the two? I would guess it's a combination of both. I mean, Russia is clearly losing the war in, in Ukraine even if the current Ukrainian offensive is making very slow progress. I mean, Russia is on its back foot. So there is a need for Moscow to try to, you know, reassure its, its populace and, you know, project strength, you know, in, in the event of, of, of how the, its invasion of Ukraine is, is unfolding. So definitely a domestic audience. But, you know, I also think that Russia is continuing to try to remind the United States and remind NATO not to get directly involved in this conflict and that there will be consequences. Now, do I think that 
Russia is serious about using nuclear weapons against you know, the United States or NATO, I think that that's highly unlikely. And I think the Biden administration has very rightly refrained from matching Russia's rhetoric. I mean, the Biden administration has remained very collective, has not risen to these threats to respond with, with threats of its own. So I think that's positive because if we saw that escalatory spiral of threatening language, again, I think it might make, it might help create an environment where, you know, um, where uh, miscalculation is, is higher and, you know, Russia may, you know, incorrectly perceive an action as having, you know, targeted them and then, you know, prematurely, you know, launch, launch a, a strike. So, you know, fortunately, I think that, um, cooler heads have prevailed in, in, in Washington and they're not rising to that level of, of rhetoric. But yes, in general, I would say, you know, again, it's just a warning to the United States and NATO, you know, not to get more involved, uh, but also like I said, a significant aspect of it is directed at the Russian people themselves. A few moments we have left. Over the next four, eight years, perhaps 12, where do you think we will be in terms of the nuclear disarmament campaign or nuclear proliferation in of itself, where will we be? Your estimation. Well, I feel like to have lasted as long in the nuclear field as, as I have, uh, you have to be optimistic. So if I'm you know, looking forward to the next decade or so, I mean, what I would like to see is that you know, the United States has reached an agreement with Iran where Iran feels like its security and economic concerns are being met and it has no desire to you know, push its civil nuclear program in a weapons direction. So we've removed a crisis there. I would like to see you know, the United States engaged in negotiations with North Korea that meaningfully reduce nuclear risk on the Korean Peninsula. So that would entail not only you know, rolling back North Korea's nuclear weapons program, but also considering how the U.S. military presence in the region, you know, in South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. extended deterrent affects you know North Korean thinking. So you know, a reduction in in that you know military presence or how that military presence you know deploys and exercises to take North Korean accounts into concern, I, th I think that would be positive. I would also like to see a return to U.S.-Russian you know, strategic stability dialogue and, and arms control negotiations, and to look at expanding that to you know, the other states that possess nuclear weapons, both those recognized by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and those outside of the treaty, you know, namely India and Pakistan, which, which we haven't spoken about much. And I think that you know, to engage these states that have, you know, much smaller arsenals, we have to be more creative about how we think about arms control and disarmament. You know, arms control is so often perceived as a numbers game, right, that it's about reducing the arsenals of the United States and, and, and Russia. Uh, I think right now there's a greater concern about some of the nuclear weapons delivery systems that, you know, a broader range of states are employing. You know, so could we look at banning nuclear chipped cruise missiles? You know, could we look at you know, some type of restriction on, on hypersonics? So I would like to see you know, states taking these steps that would reduce risk. And then also you know, recommitting uh, you know, not to use nuclear weapons against non-nuclear states, or you know, even more ideally, you know, all committing not to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict, you know, a no first use pledge. And I think that would meaningfully reduce risk and help create political space and will to negotiate you know, the more technically challenging steps of how you actually disarm arsenals so that we can work on, on, on getting to, to zero. Uh, so that's kind of my ideal world for the next decade. I think a lot of that does you know, virtually depend on the results of, of the US election and how things continue to, to play out in, in Ukraine. But certainly, I think that is a vision and that these are strategies that are worth pushing for. You speak to a lot of people within the administration, within the Pentagon. What do they tell you? I mean, without revealing secrets, whatever, but what, what do they say to you when it comes to this issue? Well, yeah, I said, I think 
you know, the Biden administration, you know, like other administrations before it, you know, again, voices that it's, you know, committed to a world free of nuclear weapons. Uh, I think that there is a lot of, you know, good thinking within the administration about, you know, what next steps could be. Uh, but I think that, you know, one of the challenges right now is, you know, it, it's harder to take, you know, bold steps on these issues, you know, during an election year. And I think that the war in Ukraine has you know, sucked a lot of oxygen out room for, you know, pushing on, on, on other issues. So, I think that I said there are a lot of very talented people with very creative ideas and, you know, providing some, uh, you know, some political space to the administration to take steps, you know, demonstrating, you know, that there is bipartisan public support for the administration to reduce, you know, nuclear risk and to be more active. I think all of that could help create the political will and the political space for you know, bolder, more creative steps and thinking, you know, to reduce nuclear risk. Because right now, I think, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, the administration is a bit, you know, hampered by, you know, some real politic issues, you know, pressure from, you know, close U.S. partners, you know, like Israel, Saudi Arabia, that, you know, do make some of the steps on Iran more challenging, for instance, you know, the challenge of trying to, you know, demonstrate a strong alliance with South Korea while also showing opening to talks, you know, with North Korea, you know, all of that, you know, makes the space to operate, you know, more, more narrow, unfortunately. So, I think, you know, again, just thinking about how we can demonstrate support, how we can show that we can, how we can demonstrate that the United States can pursue strong alliances, but also talks at the same time, how we can reassure our partners, you know, while negotiating, you know, non-proliferation. Uh, and also just in general, I think the United States, the, you know, the public, you know, needs to challenge more the premise that nuclear weapons, you know, actually keep the United States safer, that they're actually in the national security interests of, uh, of the United States. And if, you know, we can start that conversation, if we can start to kind of push on some of those levers, then I think, again, that helps create the space for more, you know, creative policy thinking, and perhaps, you know, some bolder action to reduce nuclear risk. Special guest today has been Kelsey Davenport, who is the Director for Non-Proliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. Uh, Kelsey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining us and joining us again next week as we discuss another issue of international importance here on the Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective. The Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective, is produced by Casa Margo Communications Group.